Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The Pronoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this latest edition of the P3 Podcast. It's a follow-up from episode one, really. So if you want to go back and watch or listen to episode one, wherever you're getting this from, YouTube, Spotify, etc., by all means, do that. That was with Geraint Thomas, the Welsh cyclist that has won a few races and just a few things like Tour de France, a few gold medals and world championships and that. No big deal. But it was really fascinating in terms of a conversation we had with him around his mindset and his openness regarding his relationship with some of the journalists he has. So it was really intriguing. So please, by all means, go back, which will help you join the dots for this podcast. But you don't have to. Ed Clancy was also on the call as a co-host. And his relationship with Garrett goes back nearly 20 odd years now. And you can see how tight and close they are. And it makes logical sense that for episode two of season two, we get Ed back to talk about his own thoughts, feelings and emotions. So, Ed, how are you, mate? You all good? I'm good. Thanks for having me again, PK. Thanks for everyone for tuning in. But yeah, I'm good. Uh, two days later, quick change of the t-shirt before I came down here. <laughs> Didn't want people thinking I was wearing the same t-shirt like you know every day of my life. But, yeah, um, and the guys watching on YouTube have definitely noticed that. They know it's the same backdrop, but the ones I, on Spotify, iTunes won't know that. But you could have got away with that one potentially. Ed, let's break the news first then. So obviously we've had a chat after uh, the Geraint episode, which we recorded a few days ago, and you're formally going to become the P3 Podcast co-host. How do you feel about that? Yeah, pretty good podcasts are the latest thing aren't they 2020 has been the year of the podcast about time we got involved eh? i think through your work phil you know you meet a lot of interesting fellas and you know through your sporting past in football as well and um be good to jump on board and ask some daft questions uh no such thing as a daft question but what, what i like about it you know in terms of setting the scene ed is that you will come at it from a different angle so if we are speaking to a business leader or somebody who's outside of the sporting world you'll come at it from a different angle and you might ask more pertinent questions of the audience asking for us but in terms of setting expectations obviously we're rolling it's 2021 the olympics are not far away so as and when you're available regarding training camps and all that you'll be on the line as the co-host and we very much look forward to welcoming you as and when we can so i'll be great Great. Obviously, training comes first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does in 2021. The Olympics are going to happen this year. So I'll um, be very much looking forward to that in August. So yeah, training comes first. It's uh, Olympic year once again, but I'm sure we'll fit in. Yeah, for sure. We've got a bit of time to have a chat, Ed, and I know that obviously we've spent a lot of time together the last five or six years. We've, we've done actually quite a bit of content and, and it's up on the Pronoctus YouTube channel if people want to go and have a look at that. So there's one where we did the evening with Ed Clancy where we talked about your background and how you got into cycling and all the journey of how you got to become a three-time Olympic champion and hopefully a fourth one. So I don't think we need to cover ground like that. So if the guys want to go and find out a bit more about you, that's probably a good point to go. So I think in terms of kicking us off as a conversation for this, the podcast is around mindset, human performance, some leadership skills, self-leadership, leadership of others, a strive to just be more and achieve more. This is quite a deep question to kick off with. I'm aware of that. The age of you are now, what, you're 34 now? 35, I'm oh, afraid, Phil. Just yeah. gone 35. So if yeah. the 35 Ed Clancy sat down with an 18-year-old Ed Clancy, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give him? Oh, man, where do we start? There'd be a lot, eh? <laughs> I think if there was one piece of advice, Phil, it'd be to not go too far from your values. You know what I mean? You know, when you're 18, you have this idea. I had this idea, Ahmed, anyway. You know, you want to set off in the world and you've got massive ambition and you want to achieve great things and you want to do great things and you want to be someone and you want to own some stuff, like big stuff, big houses, fast cars, Olympic gold medals, you know, all that stuff. And you have this idea that that's dead important and that's the most valuable thing, you know, you can um, that you can do. That's what it's all about. That's what life's about, right? You kind of end up in this game of sport and that kind of confirms what you already know. 
people praise you for being good at riding your bike and you know people give you a slap on the back when you do well and people disown you when you don't do well it takes a long time to sort of get your head around everything and I'm grateful that I've won a lot of races and I'm also grateful that I've shit out of a lot of big races too <laughs> and you know you get to the other side of it and you're 35 years old and you have some massive highs and lows but I'm glad I've got to a point where I kind of feel like not like I've seen it all but I've seen a lot and um, there's more clarity in my life now. I'm more sort of self-aware of what really matters. And back to the start answer, it's like your values. What do you really value, you know? I think I've said this to you before at some point, PK, but it's that whole deathbed scenario, isn't it? You've got to take yourself to a place that's not in an Olympic velodrome or not in the sporting world or the business world where like, you know, people do pat you on the back for doing a good job or bringing on the bacon or bringing a load of money or whatever it is. It's that deathbed scenario. It's like, what advice would you give to your great grandkids or your niece or whatever in my case, because I don't have kids of my own. And almost everyone would say something like, just be happy, strive for great things, but don't put too much value on possessions and achievements. Just go for it because that'll make you happy. Be a good person, you know, be kind to other people. Try to be understanding of different people and different ways of life. And yeah, these days at the grand age of 35, Phil, you know, when you're thrown into a world championships or Olympic final and so on, and, you know, you have all sorts of like voices in your head saying like, you know, this is the most important day of your life and this is the moment that's going to make or break you. And then you've got all these people in the media and the background staff and your coaches and your teammates and all sorts of things all saying the same thing. You can sort of go back to your values and be like, what do I really think? You know, what really matters? And I think that's quite a steadying thing. I wish somebody had told me that when I was 18. Yeah, to be fair, I set that up quite nicely. I asked you quite a deep question. I was going to get a deep answer, wasn't I? And it, was there a pivotal point, you think, where you've started reflecting and thinking like that about, you know, your own personal values and the type of human you want to be outside of cycling? Because you've done this three times. So you've done this twice overseas and at home, you know, the home London Olympics 2012, where you're in this bubble and cocoon in prep for the Olympics. You go off, you do your events. You've done ever so well to win three times on the bounce. And then you're in the success bubble. And then you might get an open top bus or a gold lamppost, whatever it is. And then like 48 hours, it's like, well, they've moved on to the next thing now and that attention's gone away from you. So yeah. it's not forever, is it, in terms of that no. bubble, unless you're a big cycling fan and you follow it. But in terms of front page of the newspaper, it's only for like a 24, 48 hours and then they're on to the next story. Is that why being aware of your values is so important to you? Can make sure you're happy all the time as best you can? Yeah, for that reason as well. I think just in nature, being a sports person and particularly an Olympian, you know, you do get massive peaks and troughs. I haven't spoke to a, a single Olympian that hasn't suffered some sort of come down. I probably shouldn't mention his name, but he's uh, incredibly successful in the Great Britain cycling team. And he always tells me that it's straight away for him. And like literally the day after he's gone out and banged a load of gold medals, his head just falls off and he kind of feels lost and kind of um, like he's got no mission. He's got no motivation to do anything. There's no reason for him to get up in the morning. And I was interested in listening to him telling me about that. You know, for other people like myself, I kind of ride that sort of wave. I get on the open top bus and live the dream, you know, I have a few drinks with my mates and it's all fun and games. And for me, that's lasted between like eight and nine months. But every time after Olympics, I've sort of fallen off a cliff at some point. And, you know, there is a difference between motivation and commitment, but motivation for me has sort of like, you know, come and gone in every Olympic cycle. But I don't really think, like you said, like, why have you become more self-aware? Like, why have you become more interested in this? I don't think that's the main reason, Phil, to be honest. To explain, I'm going to talk about Geraint first. And perhaps the difference between, like, me and him. Let's talk about sports world first. So there's some people that are just naturally good at sports, let's say. You know, everyone's got this friend that never exercises, never does anything, always eats rubbish food, but he somehow stays fit and healthy, right? Everyone's got a friend that is the opposite. They'll get to the gym four or five times a week, 
they're going to eat the fruit and veg every single day, but they're still 20 stone and they just can't keep the weight off or whatever, right? And I always think it's the same in mental health, how positive you are as a person. So for me, Geraint's this side, you know? As long as I've known him, he's always positive. He always sees the good. He takes victory in his stride. He takes defeat in his stride. He can see the positive in every situation. And I think that's a big part of the reason he's been so successful, you know? And in fact, on the podcast a couple of days ago, I've never really picked up on this before with Geraint, but he spoke about his dad. And when he was a kid racing his bike, his dad always said sensible things to him. Just go do your best, son. Don't worry about the results. Just get stuck in and enjoy riding your bike. I mean, I think for me, it's almost the opposite. I think if I'm left to my own devices, Phil, I'm a pretty emotional bloke. You know, I'm up and down. And, you know, some days I inspire myself. I inspire the whole team. You know, the coaches and the performance staff love me for it. But other days I'm the complete opposite, you know. And, and you know what I'm like. You know, we've worked together for a long time and I've got a skill for finding the bad in every situation which is something I'm not proud of. And it's something that I sort of recognise and I wanted to make a difference in. I think that's why it's become a part of my life these days and why I have been changing it, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, you definitely have, mate, in the time we've known you. And that can only be a positive thing for not just, obviously, Tokyo coming up, but also your business interests, which we'll talk about later on, and what you're going to do post the Olympics. And you were talking about Geraint there, and I definitely sensed a calmness and a balance in terms of who's happy who he is. And I don't want to get too spiritual here, but this is really what we're talking about, is being centred and grounded. You know, I'm happy in myself. And if you look at the theories around something like emotional intelligence, what they're talking about is that you've got a really good level of self-regard for myself, not too much, where I'm becoming cocky, arrogant, and yourself and Garrett are definitely not that. But I've got a high level of self-worth. I know I deserve to be here. Yeah, That then allows you to have a high regard for other people and be very respectful of others and realize, well, actually, everybody deserves to be here. So now it's down to us working and collaborating together. Because maybe in the past, your natural instinct is to delve a little bit deeper because you're very analytical, aren't you, in everything you do. You want to know how things break down, how things work from your psychological paths to a physical thing, even breaking down a motorbike. You know, I want to know how that works because that's the way you're driven. Maybe an element you got into overplaying that strength of overanalyzing things too much, maybe. Yeah, perhaps so. Again, like, you know, you learn a lot about yourself, don't you, as time drags on. Thinking back to when you were 18, just don't think you were self-aware. You know what I mean? You never thought about like how your emotions impact your life. And you never really thought about how you behaved and your emotions impact those around you. And that in turn kind of bounces back on you. You know, if people are like, oh, here's that miserable git again, they're not going to be happy to see you and vice versa. So uh, I think I'm definitely more self-aware. I couldn't tell you for sure why that is, Phil, but um, I know that is true. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it's because you've got a natural curiosity, haven't you? you? Again, going back to that analytical brain, you've got a natural curiosity towards that, which leads me on to my next sort of question. When we were, again, episode one of season two, we were talking to Gary Thomas there, the Tour de France winner. He was talking about his role within the team and obviously he's been really successful, but he hasn't been successful as well in terms of Tour de France a year and a half ago and the Giro d'Italia only a few months ago where another member of his team won a race that he was tipped to win. And we were talking about those mixed emotions in terms of, well, actually, I'm delighted that the team have won it and actually one of my teammates have, but I'm actually devastated that I didn't win it. And it's okay to have those mixed emotions. When we were talking about that, it was really interesting to get his view on that. So I'd encourage people to go back and have a listen. It triggered a thought, and there's a documentary on BBC where that year that he didn't win and Egan Bernal, his teammate, won the Tour de France, so a year and a half ago, Geraint commissioned through the BBC a TV programme to come behind the scenes with him. And what I noticed by watching it, it's only on for an hour, it's brilliant, it's on iPlayer if anybody's interested, it's a fantastic episode, it really gets behind the scene of the tour. But what I noticed was Egan Bernal being the youngster, you know, 19, 20, 21 years of age, 
Every time he was in shot, he was watching everything G was doing. Even when they were at a press conference and the journalists were asking Geraint to question, Egan Bernal was looking and watching everything he says, listening to him to learn from him. And the reason I'm setting that up was there must be an element of that over the last four or eight years, because obviously you're the self-confessed granddad of Team Pursuit now with Great British Cycling, that you've got all these younger, super talented riders coming through, that you are the experienced, you've been there, done it three times, you are the voice of reason. Do you see that as people looking and watching everything you're doing? Yeah, to be honest. Uh, leadership's a funny thing, eh, Phil? And sometimes it's upon you and you haven't said, look, I'm here and I want to be the leader. But you do have a responsibility to grab hold of the reins and guide the programme sometimes. And um, in some ways, I've been the elder statesman or the leader of the team. Not in 2008, you know, we had Paul Manning there. He was like the big brother of the team, Paul Manning. He'd been there and done that in Athens and so on. And he had a level head. And I'm not sure if he saw himself as a leader. But even we had Geraint Thomas, superstar in the making. We had Bradley Wiggins in the team back in 2008. But Paul was the leader, you know. He was the constant, he was a steady level head. And really when Paul went after Beijing and Geraint went and Brad went, you know, off onto the road to pursue other things, you know, even from like an early age, I guess I'd have been 23, 24 years old in 2008, 2009. At that point, you know, I was almost like the leader of the team then. You know, I was the Olympic champion and there was Stephen Burke that rode in Beijing and did the IP and got a bronze medal. But, you know, looking back, Shane and Dave were still in power at British Cycling then. And I remember Shane sort of having a few conversations with me and sort of saying, come on, Ed, these boys are looking up to you now. And you've got to show them the way and show them what's right and show them what's wrong. And I think um, on the whole, I did a pretty bad job. Okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I think uh, I didn't really know what it meant. And um, I don't think at that point in time I was old or wise enough. And, you know, even when you're Olympic champion at that point, I didn't think I had enough experience not so much experience in team pursuit, you know, I knew what I was doing there. And I think in many ways, I was ahead of the game and I was thinking things that helped us go on to win in 2012 and 2016. And But I didn't really have enough life experience. I didn't have any sort of experience with um, just simple things, managing conversations with staff, performance staff, you know, even teammates, things like that. You know, over the years, you learn a lot about how to get the best out of someone, you know, whether that's senior management, for example, yeah. you know, back then, it's so easy to kind of not see things from other people's perspectives, you know, like you go into a conversation and let's pretend I'm upset about something. And I feel sort of vindicated because I know I'm right and I know they're wrong. And it's probably little comfort for those guys to know that I've got good intentions because I want to win, you know? <laughs> Like all they know is they've got like an irate ginger guy that's emotional, that's sort of um, winding them up, you know, and he's not being productive and he's coming with them with problems rather than solutions and answers. And he might have a point, but he also has forgot to look at X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, you, you learn when you're a bit older how you can better manage situations and get the best out of people and get the best out of yourself. And, you know, London went well and we had a great team there and Geraint came back to the team and Berkey sort of graduated to the senior programme. We added Pete Kenner into the mix and we had a great team. And uh, I feel like at that point I was sort of, I'd learned a bit about leading teams and trying to get the best out of people and being more sort of self-aware of myself and how that could impact other people and coaches and staff. But I did have my moments, you know. And um, hey, this is a long-winded answer, isn't it? But I mean, if I fast forward a little bit to 2014, Phil, I, mean, I think that was probably one of the real low points in my career, you know, when Paul Manning was back so this is the guy that rode with this in 2008. He was like the big brother of the team. And all of a sudden, he's like our coach in 2014. And again, I feel like 
perhaps it's because we knew each other and we were friends, but it was difficult, you know. There was almost like a little um, fight of power and just a difference of ideas, you know. Paul's a great coach and he was a great rider, but, you know, through it all, I had loads of respect for him. But it was a difficult time and back in 2014, we famously had the worst result that any team pursuit in history has ever had. I don't regret that though, because I learned a lot about myself then, you know, and I think at some point earlier in this conversation, Phil, you asked me if there was any like light bulb moments or any epiphanies that sort of went off. That was it really. I kind of like, I turned a bit of a corner there and I sort of said to myself after that, you know what, I'm not going to point the blame at anybody else for anything ever again. I'm going to try and take responsibility for the good things that happened to me and try and take responsibility for when I cock up as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, funnily enough, I feel like ever since I've done that, you know, there's a kind of uncomfortable look in the mirror sometimes. But I do feel like that point in 2014 made me into a better leader, let's say. Yeah, you were piecing a few things together for me, to be honest, where, you, and it does take a significant event, positive or negative, sometimes to look in the mirror, you know, and if you've had a bad year in 2014, 18 months, two years away from your next Olympics, your next big event, you want to do something different about it, don't you? And yeah, I was just trying to join some pieces there in terms of, obviously, it was around about that time that we met for the first time and when you were working with JLT Condor, and that's where that probably come along at the right time, as we started off with self-awareness, if you remember, in terms of learning more about yourself, just to confirm your biases as well as your strengths, in terms of the way we want to think and the fact that we've got to understand that everybody comes to the table with a different perspective. We still talk about that today, like, you know, with the old JLT teammates and whether you're a Green or a Red or you're a Jeremy Clarkson or you're a Richard <laughs> Hammond or a James May sort of thing. And, yeah. you know, me and Ali still refer to each other as Greens and pull a nerd face and talk about numbers and so on. Yeah, that was really the first sort of step in terms of talking about that and kind of understanding more about yourself, yeah. Yeah, it can be useful, really, really useful when you empower that. And I'm thinking in terms of your leadership position, obviously 2008, you were part of the team. The team dispersed 2012, obviously it was a little bit on your shoulders, but I would have thought the team dynamics, having someone like Geraint and Pete, who you know well and known from the junior ranks, this familiarity, so it makes life a little bit easier. And then the journey to 2016, obviously you've got that opportunity to grow and mature, to go off to Rio in a good place comfortable in your own skin, comfortable in my position as a leader. But what I will say is, and a lot of listeners might not know this, your physical battle from a personal perspective to get to 2016 was quite difficult, wasn't it? So maybe there's an element of not being able to fulfill your full leadership potential in the highest challenge, which is the Olympic Games, because of loads of other things in and around it. Yeah, man. So we're talking about the back surgery here in 2015. It all started in the Tour of Britain. So we just spoke about 2014 briefly with Paul Manning and, you know, I had a terrible result there. And Shane Sutton, the main man, the performance director at that point in time, decided to get a sort of fresh face into coaches. And we were working with a dude called Heiko at that point in time. It started well, you know, Heiko was, um, he knew what he wanted and he had his way. And then that was the way it was going to get done. And if he kind of opposed that way, there's going to be big problems. But personally, I kind of like that, you know. In some ways, it kind of took the brain work out of it. And it was almost like being in, well, not that I can relate to it, but I kind of imagined it to be in like in the military. You know, when Heiko said jump, you said how high. There was no questions. There was no messings. You know, it was clear that he was the voice of authority. I'm not sure that that's the ultimate recipe for the ultimate success, but it worked. You know, and it worked well enough for us to go and do the business. You know, back to the story, I was kind of getting into my stride and things were going well. And towards the end of 2015, I was really kind of feeling good and getting excited about the Olympics in Rio. We rode the Tour of Britain at the end of 2015. And I turned around to sign a kid's autograph. And at the same time, I kind of picked up my suitcase. And the suitcase had nothing, a pair of boxer shorts and a wash bag in it. I can't weigh more than two or three kilos. And I felt this like weird pop in my back and a pain down my leg. It was the pain down my leg, which is the weird bit. I was like, this is bizarre. 
Anyway, I thought I'll just limp it off. And we had some sponsors in town. So we went for a drink with the sponsors on the last day of tour of Britain. Next thing I remember, sort of waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. And I was sober, you know, it wasn't that. But I remember thinking like, wow, it's unusual to wake up with pain in your back and your leg. For the pain to wake you up, that is bizarre. Yeah, so that was a prolapse disc in my back. And the rowers have it, but for a cyclist, it's fairly uncommon. I did my research and there have been very, very few cyclists that have had this that made a comeback, you know, on an elite level, like, you know, world tour riders or uh, sort of Olympic level track riders, whatever. There was one fella called Brad McGee, who was an Australian road rider. He'd won the prologue in the Tour de France and so on. But truth be told, if you look at his results, you can argue that he never really came back from it. I knew I was up against it, Phil. And yeah, long story short, it was bloody tragic, man. Honestly, it was hard work. You know, like nine times out of 10, you get a little injury and you've got to take a week off your bike. You've got a knee niggle, you go see the physio. That was the start of not even riding a bike for four or five months. I remember the day after surgery, it was the 4th of December, I was back home, 2015. My target was to go post a letter and the post box is about three and a half minute walk down the road. That's where it started, the 4th of December, the comeback. And, you know, every day we built up from there. We had to keep my back upright, so we couldn't go ride a bike. We definitely couldn't get on a low pro on the track or do anything like that. We had to keep my back completely upright so that the disc would heal. So all I could do was lie down and walk. And we're talking for four months here. So every day I'd sort of like get out of my bed, completely upright, go down, kneel at the kitchen table, because of course you can't sit down. I'd get my sneakers on, I'd go for a walk. It's nice around here in Firth, so I'd walk around the reservoir or whatever, and I'd get back an hour or two later. And that's what I did to try and keep fit. And I was going in and out of the track to get sort of physiotherapy on my back and my leg and stuff and try and get in a position where we could ride a bike from February onwards and so on. Even when I was getting transported to the track, I had to lay down across the back seats of a van, just staring at the roof. We were supposed to be riding the Olympics in eight months' time at that point, and we still had to ride the World Championships to qualify my place. So it was a difficult time, but you know how it is, Phil. You know, if you look hard enough, you can see the positives and everything. And there were positives to come out of it. Strangely enough, I don't think I'd ever felt better supported by management. You know, I was sure that that was my time come, you know. You know, I didn't always get on well with Shane, but when I woke up from that operation, he made it clear that he'd do everything he could to help me get back to where I belonged in Rio. I didn't expect that. I had a lot of support from friends, family. And I think the best thing that came out of that was just to see the support I had, you know. And it's always been there, but I guess you don't see it until you need it the most. It was a tough time, man. You know, we were out the velodrome. We eventually got on the bikes. There's a physio called Hannah. And, um, you know, ordinarily when you're an athlete, sometimes it's your psychologist or your mentor. You know, nine times out of ten, it's your coach that's the most important person in getting you to the start line. For me, the most important person for that last year and a half was Hannah. I needed Hannah pretty much every day of my life just to get to do any training. Yeah, put you back together. And uh, boy, did you. Fast forward a few months and another gold medal around your neck, which is incredible, especially when you've got that backstory, you know, eight or nine months before. Yeah, you know, everything about that was just a bloody fight, you know. It was a fight to get to the start line. It was a fight to get back from the injury. Anyone that's seen that Olympic final, you know, between us and the Aussies, man, you know, that was a close one. You know, we were unlike Beijing and London, you know, we were losing that race for three and a half K. And it was only the last 500 metres where it slowly turned around. Yeah, and there's loads of messages in that story there, Ed, in terms of, you know, keep fighting, keep your eye on the prize. 
but you need the support of others to get there. And specifically, you know, that little inspirational leadership moment, you know, where the boss in charge has gone, we've got your back here, literally, pun intended. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're going to support you. And then calling out the specialist support you had with Hannah, the physio. Big shout out for Hannah. Well done, Hannah. Yeah. But yeah, there's loads and loads of bits in there. And it is surprising what we could do when we pull together as a team. And more often than not, I think this is, this is true in business as well, that we go about doing our business do our own personal roles and we're not always interconnected with everything that's going on. So we know what our job is for the team or the department or the organization to succeed. But when we're really up against it, then that's when the team really gels together through adversity. I've got no doubt that that victory in Rio tasted a hell of a lot sweeter because of the challenges you had. Oh, big time, man. Like every single time I'm asked, like, what was your favorite race? What was your best race? Rio, no doubt about it. Still after all that, you know, I've never been more dedicated. I still wasn't back to my best, but it was so much better. When I look back to Beijing, I think it's fair to say that me and Geraint walked into the building with plenty of talent and a lot of enthusiasm, but in some ways we didn't know how good we had it. You know, I'm not sort of saying that we shouldn't take any credit for it because we worked hard, obviously. But, you know, we walked into one of the greatest teams, you know, with an inspirational leader, Dave Brailsford. You know, I think we were ahead of a lot of the competition in terms of the way we trained and the way we approached the event on the big day. I wouldn't say it was like ticking a box, but it wasn't nearly as satisfying as London. And then Rio was just like on a completely different world, you know. It was it was just something else, you know, to just go through all that. And even the race itself was just a battle from the start to the finish. It did feel all the more satisfying for it, you know. And again, you've got another opportunity, haven't you? In the not-too-distant future, hopefully, all going well. You can get to that start line again. And then if you think about, well, my career might have been over five years ago, but I've got an opportunity to go and do it about six years ago now, I suppose, because we've skipped forward a year. It's just so easy to become complacent in life, isn't it? And this is an old Steve Peters perler that he told me when I was just a youngster. He said, be careful about possessions and achievements because you'll tend to find that, you know, no matter what you achieve and, you know, what you get yourself, their appeal fades over time. Yeah. If you imagine back to when you were 18 and somebody said you were going to win, not one, not two, but three Olympic gold medals, you'd be like, no way. I'll literally cut off three of my limbs to have that. <laughs> and... Uh, it's funny how, like, unless you're sort of really thinking about it and you're actively being grateful for it and, like, writing down your blessings, it's so easy to become complacent and think, you know, wow, we've done that, but that's yesterday's news. If we don't win an Olympic gold medal in Tokyo, my life's a failure yet again. And it's just <laughs> ridiculous when you think about it, but... I guess there's something in all competitors that keeps us chomping at the bit and keeps us wanting more. Yeah, definitely. And keeps that hunger and drive and that fire alive. We've banded about some big names in cycling during this podcast because obviously you've spent quite a bit of time with them. I mean, you just mentioned Dave Brailsford. Obviously, he was a big influence on British cycling and then obviously later Team Sky and Team Ineos, as they're called now. But I mean, I think if you sat down with somebody who maybe was a little bit interested in British cycling and you said, right, can you name the top four British cyclists of all time? Let's just say they only had the last 10 or 20 years history at the forefront of their mind, not the previous generation. I think they'd say Chris Froome, Gary Thomas, Bradley Wiggins, and probably Mark Cavendish. I think that's a fair assumption because the amount of press they get. Yeah. And three out of those four, you've spent a lot of time with those three. And the point I'm getting at is with those three and everybody else who's been greatly successful from your Chris Hoyes, et cetera, and Dave Brailsford and the management team, is there a theme and a thread that pulls through their characteristics, their behavior, their mindset that sets it up for success? No doubt you're all individuals, but is there something they've all got? Certainly with Cav, Geraint, Brailsford, I think they were all quite naturally like positive people. Yeah, for those three in particular, they were all, I don't know if dreamers is the right word. They all had like a mad dream, like a dream that was so ridiculous that like, you know, if they'd have said it out loud, nobody would have believed them, you know? Out of all of them, it's Cav and Geraint that I know best. 
you know, in the time that I spent with Dave, I did pick up on that a little bit, but, you know, I don't want to pretend that I've got um, a close relationship with him, so I'm not 100% sure. But with Cav and Geraint, Cav was always pretty vocal about his dream, where he thought he was going to end up, you know, and funnily enough, he ended up doing it. And I think Geraint, I think he always kind of grew up with um, a dream so ridiculous that if he spat it out, people would have laughed at him, as we did when Cav said it, you know? (laughs) And, you know, Cav did say it. I remember, like it was yesterday, he'd tell us in the academy house how good he was going to be and... I was going to be the best sprinter in the world. And yeah, I think sometimes you've got to think it's possible before you can actually make it happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, people have different languages for it, but there's this sort of this idea that people put a roof over their head and they say, well, that's that's all I've got. I am going to throw Brailsford into this equation as well because, you know, this is a long, long time ago and uh, there was some sort of conversation was struck about Olympic goals and targets and so on. I remember Brailsford just shaking his head and saying, why can't we win them all? I think that's possibly why he's gone on to lead perhaps the greatest Olympic team of the 21st century, at least, uh, and then gone off and done exactly the same thing on the road. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, we had Jason Queeley. Once he did it on his own, but he started the ball roll and he started the funding coming in. To think that 10 years after Jason Queeley got that first real gold medal in 2000, or in 2010, there was this sort of Sky team around that went on to win everything and you know, if you'd have asked Dave, I think, in the year 2000, if he thought that was possible, he'd have said, yeah. And yeah. everyone would have laughed him out of the room. And I'll go a stage further. I'd say that go before the team was even formed, there would have been business meetings about what we're going to do, who's the sponsors. And the sponsors would have want absolute belief and confidence in the person that they're going to trust their money with. Yeah. So he would have had to mean it. Because if you haven't got faith in yourself at that point, there's no way they're going to invest in you. I'm obviously, I don't know them whatsoever, but I think that the difference between Mark Cavendish and Garen Thomas is Mark Cavendish would say it because I think he wants to be held accountable because I've said it, so I've got to do it now. Yeah. It, you know, it was external, but Garen will say it to himself internally and he'll hold himself accountable of going, well, I won't say it out loud and be perceived as brash, where Mark thrived off that. The question was, well, you said you were going to win everything and you haven't won it. Yeah, but I'll give him my best go and I'm going to go again tomorrow. He loved that combative conversation where Garrett was a bit more placid and chilled out. Yeah, that sounds about right. Is it the same your side of spending time with them, especially when they were younger? Yeah, exactly the same. Exactly the same. Like, Cav was uh, very, very vocal. It wasn't brash or arrogant. That was just funny. That's how he was. And um, <laughs> he's still the same. Like, uh, I spoke to him uh, maybe two or three weeks ago now. He still rings me up occasionally. And I tell you what, there's another similarity between Geraint and Cav that I'll throw out of there. Their personality off the bike compared to on the bike is just completely different, you know? <laughs> like, completely different. I remember riding next to Cav in some race abroad. Again, it must have been years and years and years ago. You know, he bopped up alongside and he said hello and pat me on the back. And I think he wobbled around some pothole or something. And an Italian guy behind kicked off at him. He turned around and insulted his mum in the best way possible. But like Cav, off the bike, he's just such a nice bloke, you know, and he asks you how you are and how the cat's doing and just like the nicest guy ever. But, you know, of course, we've all seen how feisty he is when it comes down to the heat of battle. And same with Geraint, man. He's quiet and he's polite. But on the bike, he's an absolute warrior. I've seen a lot of Geraint in training on the run-up to two Olympic Games. And he's just a warrior, you know what I mean? He's um, On his good days, he's excellent. He commits and he puts the time in, he goes through the motions and does every interval. But it's on his bad days that Geraint's just like on another level. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just a warrior. 
it doesn't matter if he's crashed half an hour in or he's run out of food or it's like terrible rain. That's when G comes good. He's the guy that sort of wins the races on his bad days, you know? I remember on the podcast with Garrett and we flushed out that second stage of the Giro d'Italia this year where, unfortunately, he was taken off his bike by a random water bottle, which is a complete freak thing. And he then had to ride, you know, 120k on the front of the whole peloton because they didn't want to show any sign of weakness to the competitors. And then it was only when they got to the bottom of Mount Etna, which is not exactly a small climb, did he realise that obviously he couldn't put the power down through the pedals and he just casually dropped into there. Yeah, you know, I lost six minutes to the GC contenders. And then you fast forward 24 hours, he's been x-rayed and he's like got a triple hip fracture and he's gone. And I'm thinking... I think I'd be like 40 or 50 minutes behind him and that's fully fit. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous what he does. He's done it more than once, hasn't he? Absolute warrior. And I think yeah, it's not a jinx it, but he does seem to crash slightly more than average. Is it fair to say that? It's amazing what he's done and like the injuries he's rode through in the past as well. So. Yeah, and there's two sides to that. There's an element of being unlucky and also he's always in the mix and he, even his domestique days, he had to be at the front working really hard as a team player. Yeah. And everyone's got to play their part. And I think, again, the link between the three of them, Dave Brailsford, your Mark Cavendish and your Gary Thomas is the same as yourself. You've got to be driven towards your goal and have sheer clarity of that and you know, it'd be great if Cav ever listens to this or Mark Cavendish. If Mark Cavendish ever wanted to come on next, I think it'd be really interesting and fascinating to get inside that mind. You know, you've done 120 miles, fastest road race in the world, and you then got to put out max effort to win a race where everybody else wants to win around you as well. I think it'd be fascinating. But going back to Geraint, you were super complimentary towards him. Now, to give a little bit of a backdrop to this, you know, you've known each other since you were teenagers. You lived together in Manchester when you were going through the academy and we were his best man at his wedding. So you're really, really close. But what did strike me is your admiration for him, not in terms of what he's achieved, but in terms of his personality and his endeavour and his drive and his gutsiness. Was that a fair observation of mine? Yeah, definitely, yeah. You know, when you're inside the game, let's say, and you've kind of grown up around guys like G and Cav and so on, when you speak to Cav, he's almost like, when he's not taking the mick, he's an all that, like, you know, we can turn up and bang out Olympic gold medals in the team pursuit and he admires that and you appreciate that they're incredible athletes and they can bang out a threshold of X at a weight of Y and that enables him to be a tour winner. Yeah. And the same with Cav, you know, he's got a sprint of X and he's able to deliver that at the end of a 200k stage race for three weeks because he's made out of such and such fibers. You can sort of like break it down into kind of like logic and be like, yeah, well, that's why he can do what he does. That's why he's the greatest sprinter of all time. That's why he's a Tour de France champion and he's won X amount of gold medals. It's cool that it's sort of like nice guys as well, you know. And I think that's the sum it up is obviously because they're good blokes as well. And I think that sometimes the media don't portray you in the true light and you get asked stupid questions at the wrong time and then that can be misconstrued of you. This just comes back to what we were talking about at the start, man. That both those lads have got good values. Yeah. I'm interested in what they can do on the bike. And of course, I admire that like everybody else does. Of course, I've kind of like my fanboy moments like, wow, you know, Cav's <laughs> done this or Geraint's done that. But um, it's the values, isn't it? You know, when Cav's at home and... <laughs> pretends he doesn't like his cats and he's telling you about the things he's doing for his kids and how happy he is with Peter, his wife, and so on, and things like that. You're like, wow, this guy's absolute legend, you know? Yeah, great. And, you know, same with Garrett. He's a good father. He's a great husband. The guys with good values, you know? And again, you just sparked another memory where I remember I popped up your house last summer, so it was uh, 2019. It must have been in and around July when the Tour de France was on and Garrett was going for his second win. And there was a stage on and I said, oh, have you had the cycling on? And you were like, oh, no, I haven't yet. I'll probably watch the highlights tonight because obviously you've got to train during the day yourself. So you can't lounge around watching a five-hour stage. And I said, oh, Geraint's doing well, isn't he? You said something like, well, yeah, it's Geraint, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's so driven and so talented that he's going to be there or thereabouts. Otherwise, he wouldn't put himself in the mix. No, that's it. Yeah, he's just got it, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's got it. Good lad as well. And we really appreciate him coming on. 
So uh, just to wrap up, we'll do some quick fire questions. What's like your worst ever day on a bike? Has it been like a training round riding like 600 mile an hour winds or is it a specific race where you got dropped or a huge climb where you just bonked out? How quick do you want me to answer it? Because I've got two pretty decent examples that are both different ends of the spectrum. For you, I've got all the time in the world. All right, let's start with the last day of Tour of Britain. Not when my back died, but probably years before that. There's a fella called Rob Hales, who was, uh, you know, one of the senior tracky guys. Must have like three or four Olympic medals. And, you know, it was always a big deal when I was growing up. And I always looked up to Rob. And, you know, when me and Geraint were little youngsters, he was always, him and Steve Cummins were always the ones that sort of reach out and give us a bit of advice and give us that positive affirmations we were looking for. He was a top lad. Anyway, it came down to the Tour of Britain and it was the last stage. And we had radios back then. And my radio wasn't working. I was in the breakaway the last stage of Tour of Britain as a youngster. And I was living the dream and I was dead excited and I was smashing away and my radio wasn't working so I didn't hear a thing. So when I look back and Keith Lambert was in the car, you know, when he went around the hairpin, I thought, oh great, I'm doing a good job. And then we got to the finish and we got swallowed up like every breakaway does on a flat stage. And Rob Ailes was second in the sprint. And I remember he came to me at the finish and he said, I could have done with you there in that sprint, Ed. I just needed one more lead out, man, and I'd have had that. And from going from like buzzing, I've been in the breakaway, I'm doing a good job here. And I wasn't from a racing background and I should have been smarter. I should have just dropped out the break, come back and helped out Rob and we could have had that stage. And it killed me, man, because I've always looked up to Rob and he's an absolute legend of a bloke. You know, when somebody like that says, oh, I'm disappointed, that <laughs> killed me, man. Were you riding for Team GB then, were you? It's either GB or Halfords, I can't remember. It might have been Halfords in 2009 or something. So yeah, hey, I was all quickly forgotten on that, but at the time it just absolutely killed me, Phil. <laughs> I just felt so bad. And just for the guys listening on the podcast from Spotify, iTunes, or whatever, they can't see your face, and I can see it, and it still pains you today, doesn't oh, it? It does, man. Yeah, just <laughs> uh, you had a great year in the Alfred's team, and again, Rob's a great leader at that point in time, and he was funny, he had good banter, and it was always somebody I really looked up to, admired, and I just killed me when he said, oh, "I could have done with there," and he'd have had that. So my second word down a bike was Liège, Bast on Liège, a team called Lambo Credit out in Belgium, small professional team, and this is before Beijing. I was in sort of out of my depth, to be honest, and so you start Liège, you go basically south to Baston, you do a U-turn, then go back up the other side, and it's hard, it's hilly, it's horrible, and it must have been the hottest day of the year, it was ridiculous. I got dropped just before the second feed, which was at about 198k which tells you how long the race was. I think it was three feeds. <laughs> I got to the feed just in time to see the last team car and the Lambo credit bus driving off into the distance. And at that point, I'd run out of bottles and pretty much had another 80k to do solo on my own, completely dead. So I made it back to Liège, but it took about another four hours. I just completely blown. I was picking up beers off spectators just to drink anything. Get something done. That was a long day at the office, man. Like a 12-hour day. It was ridiculous. You said in passing when we had a call a few weeks back, you were going, I, I remember when I was out on the circuit early pro career and you were up north and Gary was down south with his team and he was yeah. like getting dropped on a race and almost DNFing <laughs> and then you getting hammered on another race and then you were like texting each other going, what's all this about? <laughs> it was that sort of time, yeah. Like Gary was riding for Barlow World before Beijing and I was riding for Lambo Credit before I'd realised that the road was a terrible idea. Yeah, it was funny days looking back. You know, everyone's got to start somewhere, haven't they? And uh, it's very rarely pure luck. There's a lot of work and skill gone in the background and then a lot of sacrifice and pain as well, that's for sure. A couple of other quicker fire questions then. So who's your sporting hero? I'm lucky that I've rode with most of them. Like Chris Oi, legend. Most friends with him, but I've got huge admiration for him and you know every interview he does and you know the things he's done since retiring and yeah. the sort of afterlife and all that. And 
top guy. I'll make a prediction live on the P3 podcast. You'll get to know him better over the next three or four years because I've got money on you being the next BBC Eurosport track presenter stood next to Chris Hoy for sure. There you go. You're here first. Non-sporting hero. I'll give that to my stepdad. It just needed that first foothold, you know, and without him, we wouldn't have got rolling, you know. I had my paper round, had a cheap racing bike from Alfords, but, you know, we were going nowhere and mm. I wasn't from a cycling background or anything like that and bless him, like, you know, he was probably my age when my mum turned up with two horrible teenage kids <laughs> and to sort of welcome us into his house and not just put up with us, but kind of embrace me and my big brother. Yeah, legend. Yeah, and, and that's a fascinating story in itself, not for now, but I remember when we did an evening with Ed Clancy over a year ago now, believe it or not, you talked about that in depth. The feedback we've got was that that was actually quite fascinating because it is unique and slightly different, isn't it? That's for sure. So thanks for sharing that. Your retirement party, fourth gold medal. Who's your five guests? Five guests, man. I think you've got to define what type of meal it is. Is it a proper whoop whoop party or is it, no, we're going to have a proper reflect on the old times drink? Can it be dead or alive? Is it Everyone's going to be alive. Let's change the rules either. I'll tell you what, let's start with Michael Schumacher. When I was a kid, he was one of my sporting heroes, you know? I've always been a big motorsport fan, you know, I love watching the F1. And it's kind of like, you see all the old F1 guys in the paddock mincing around and doing the interviews and so on. But um, yeah, so Michael Schumacher. Who's was that guy from the Tiger King? Is it Johnny something? We're bringing him along to the party just because he's good banter and he's just mesmerising in the weirdest way. Just call him Johnny Mullet. Yeah, that'll, yeah, Mr Mullet, the lion mullet. And then I'm going to have Berkey, Stephen Burke, yeah. old team pursuit mate. I'm going to get Brad in there just because I literally haven't seen him since Rio. I bring Cav as well. <laughs> Fireworks. Just because he just, yeah, he just lights up any pie, lights up a room, doesn't he? I was wondering if you were going to drop in one of your mates because obviously you've got access to them anytime you want, but um, Betty's a good laugh on a night out. There you yeah, go. Yeah. All right. We know what your big goal is for 2021. Obviously, it's pivoted from 2020. It's Olympic gold. I want to talk a little bit about future plans now. Obviously, you're going to collaborate and keep working with us. You're at Pro Noctis as our brand ambassador, and you'll become a performance consultant, which we've already started work on. You're obviously now a prestigious podcast presenter and co-host of the P3 podcast. But I think I want to touch on the Clancy Briggs Cycling Academy that had so many great things set up for 2020 and then COVID hit. But I think the drive, determination and the offering is so important there, probably even more so now after the year we've had. So do you want to share a little bit about why you set it up, what your aims are and how people can get in touch regarding it? Because it's such a fantastic cause, that's for sure. Me and my mate Graham Briggs, he's a longtime teammate from the JLT Condor team. We set it up because we believe in cycling is a short answer, you know. There's a lot of Instagram and Twitter and Playstations and Xboxes out there for the youth of today. And that's not a bad thing, but I think there's a great alternative. You know, when I was a kid growing up riding bikes, I loved it, you know, it changed my life. It gave me an escape from the house. It was social. It sort of kept you fit, you know, both mentally and physically. You know, that's just words. But when you look at the numbers and, you know, the studies that are done on it, I think kids struggle these days without play. I don't think it's particularly easy for kids these days, you know, looking up Instagram and seeing how brilliant everybody else's life looks like it is. And I think, you know, whether they're kicking a football around a field or chasing a rugby ball or riding a bike, I think going out and getting some exercise is something that's getting harder and harder to achieve, you know. It's particularly on the bikes, the roads are getting busier and we just wanted to create a cycling academy for the youngsters. I feel like if you're into golf, tennis, cricket, football, rugby, whatever... There's decent academies that set up across the UK to kind of enable your kids to go and meet other like-minded kids and have fun. This is our attempt at doing it for cycling, yeah. Yeah, 100%. It's fantastic. And I think that, I know you flippantly said it at one of the events you were at, you want to get 100,000 kids onto bikes. And why not? Because you could very quickly do that. Get through a few schools and through private clubs and memberships and franchise out the business. 
And I think it's such a big thing because I've rode BMXs and mountain bikes since I was a little nipper and it gave me my first ever source and sense of freedom. I lived and got brought up two or three miles from the coast and very, very young. I was off riding my mountain bike over the sand dunes to get to the beach and it gave me that element of self-control, self-drive. There's only once as a young nipper, you go and ride six or seven miles without a drink, isn't it? And also you quickly learn you can't drink seawater, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially on a hot summer's day. So um, it resonates with me. And it goes without saying that everybody at Pronoctus wishes you and Graham and Sam, of course, all the very best with that. And if people want to learn more, please go onto their websites, clancybriggs.co.uk and have a little look at what they're up to. And no doubt that once we get a clear run up, COVID's out the way, then you'll be expanding all over the UK and you'll get many, many more clients coming through the door to enable you and Graham to inspire the next generation. Cheers, Phil. Lovely plug. Despite this year, it's doing remarkably well. You know, we've got over 200 active members over at the Doncaster track and it's the day pop-up events that go really well as well. So when people are coming for a day, they come in from all over the place, you know, up in Scotland, Wales, down south, and it has got national appeal. I've always had a bit more ambition than talent, eh? But uh, <laughs> we're going to give it a go. Brilliant, it's great. And um, once, whatever this podcast goes out on all the main Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and obviously YouTube, We'll put all the links to Clancy Briggs at the bottom. So if people want to learn a bit more, they can go and click there. But also we'll put links to your social media platforms so um, people can see what you're up to. What I will say is Ed's not the most active on social media because he's too busy living his life and riding a bike. But that's absolutely fine. And the stuff he does put up is absolutely top-notch quality, normally ripping up through woods on a mountain bike and doing all sorts of tricks. Go and follow him and without a doubt come and follow Pronoctus as well because we put a lot of our shared material up. But Ed... Episode two, done of season two of the P3 podcast. Thanks very much for your time as always and your insight. I do feel that we could be chatting for hours, but we have got lives to lead as well. We better go and check in with the other halves before we get a bollock in. So uh, thanks, mate. Thanks for your time and your insight. All right. Cheers, PK. Catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.